It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah, You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm so glad to be with you. We have such a great show ahead of you uh, this week. Takeout podcast I created this a long time ago. You know what the show's about. Two things each and every week. One, we are relentlessly curious. Second, we're steadfastly non-ideological, non-partisan, so full spectrum of political conversations, policy. And then we have weeks like this. We just get to learn about a fascinating topic that most of us are at some level curious about but have probably, in all likelihood, zero actual knowledge of an experience with. What is that topic? Well, the world of espionage and disguises. And there's literally no one better to talk about that subject and peel as much back from it as she can than Jonah Mendez, uh, wife of a gentleman named Tony Mendez, who died in January. Tony Mendez is one of the most decorated CIA officers in American history. If you have any familiarity with the Academy Award winning movie Argo, you know who Tony Mendez was, played by Ben Affleck in that great movie. We'll get into all that a little bit later. John has got a new book out that was co-written with her husband, Tony Mendez, called The Moscow Rules. Book's right here on the table. John, it's great to see you. Thank you for joining us. What are the Moscow Rules, and do they apply to, to life outside of espionage? Well, no one's, no one's ever asked me that question before, so this is a good beginning. Uh, the Moscow Rules, we didn't write them. We didn't, we didn't invent them. We simply committed them to paper. They were the rules of the road. If you were a CIA officer going to Moscow, the most difficult assignment we could, we could propose to anyone, we used to call it the belly of the beast. It was a terrible place to be an intelligence officer. Why? Because the surveillance in Moscow was almost suffocating. It was all-encompassing. It didn't matter if you were in a car, you had a team of, of cars that would follow you coming in and out of your vision. If you were on the street, they were walking behind you and across the street and trying to anticipate you. If you were in your apartment, they were in the walls. They had bugs that were monitored real time. So they're listening, not to a recording, they're listening to you either have an argument with (laughs) with your wife or chastise your kids or discuss an operation. If you were in the embassy, 
they were all around you because they were called foreign nationals. And we had a good, big number of foreign nationals working in our embassy in Moscow. And, the, and the, so that's as tight and, as you said, suffocating an environment as one could be if you're within the CIA. What are the rules to live under that or live within that reality? A lot of the rules have to do with when you're out and about when you're on the street. You have to bear in mind that, that it was so dangerous to run an intelligence operation in Moscow that we would not meet face-to-face -face with our foreign assets who were reporting to us. It was too dangerous. They would find them and they would arrest them and they would execute them. It was a summary execution. There was no question. You would, you would die. So we had to keep a distance, but we still had to communicate with them. We had to deliver stuff to them. They had to give us the intelligence. And intelligence is only useful once it's transmitted. Right. Um, and so it was that, that in-between space that we had to figure out how do you, how do you put down a drop, dead drop? How do you determine if you have surveillance? How do you put up a signal under surveillance? How do you do those things? Wow. I want to let everyone in the audience know, uh, CBS Centers, you're getting a feel for this. If you're listening to the podcast or on radio stations around the country, you're hearing lots of laughter, happy sounds. We're at a restaurant called Il Canale. That's as close to Italian as I can get. Not bad. I would say I'd give it a solid five here in Georgetown. Uh, this, this is an uh, authentic Italian restaurant that has been licensed by the, well, they serve Neapolitan pizza here. And in Italy, I didn't even know this, I walked in here, the government inspects your process. And you can only say you serve Neapolitan pizza if you pass the Italian government inspection. Il Canale has, and we're going to have some of that in just a couple of moments. D, our waitress, will be approaching the table momentarily. Um, you mentioned a phrase, dead drops. Uh, fans of the show will remember a couple of weeks ago, also when we were eating pizza, we met a gentleman named Eric O'Neill. Eric O'Neill, as you may well remember, was part of the FBI team that cracked the Robert Hansen case. And dead drops were crucial yes. to what he was doing with them yes. against us. So remind my audience again what a dead drop is and why it has to fill this in-between space where you can't have direct contact. To transmit information or material goods. It could be money. It could be medicine. Uh, in, in Moscow, we would give them medicine for their kids. We would give them things that they could not have. Things they valued and wanted to trade for. And our requirements, what we needed to know. Um, maybe some money. Sometimes money, sometimes not. Because some of them did it for ideological reasons. Put their, literally put their lives on the line because they believed in the West. But whatever it was, it was a, a back and forth uh, with, with Robert Hansen, with Aldrich James in the United States. They were doing exactly the same thing. They were working against... Just the, in the uh, other direction, yeah. That's right. They were working against the FBI. The, the techniques are similar. Moscow was harder because they were everywhere. The FBI is not everywhere in Washington, D.C. In Moscow, it was, it was overwhelming. It, it was a genuine police state in that sense of yeah. suffocating surveillance. And their goal was to keep us from working. Right. Now, what if you're in an elevator? Is that a safe place to talk? There was no safe place to talk. No safe place to talk in Even Moscow. Even in our American embassy. In our American embassy, the only safe place was uh, a room called uh, the bubble. It was made of plexiglass blocks. It's set up on plexiglass blocks. There was no place to hide a bug. There was no place to put it. So we felt like in the bubble, and a lot of embassies have those bubbles, then it was safe. And under what circumstances would you go to the bubble? 
to discuss operational plans, to discuss uh, techniques, to, uh, to discuss cases that you were running, um, and your future plans, what you intended to do. A popular place, I'm guessing. Do you have to make a reservation for the bubble? I think the CIA used the bubble a lot. <laughs> we, may right. have, we may have gotten preference. I, I would say I so, I yes. You know, I just, I saw... It, it, it's Tuesday. It's bubble day for the CIA, right? I saw a photograph a couple of years ago of Obama. He was overseas, I want to say, was he in Russia? He might have been in Russia, but he was in some big, big, beautiful hotel. And they rented, of course, a separate room for him, and they put up a tent. It is their bubble. It's, 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 a, it's a skiff that, that they can assemble and disassemble and take it to the next, to the next site. You can't have conversations. It is, uh, and I've forgotten what the acronym means, but SCIF has an acronym to it. Each letter represents something. It's essentially a portable bubble. It's a classified space. D is here. Hello, D. Hey, I D. told the audience would be here, uh, so I'm glad to see you. Thanks for joining us. Can I have the meat lover's pizza, please? That is utterly consistent with my dietary intake, as everyone who watches or listens to this podcast knows. No, no, wrong sound effect. No, meat is great. So we celebrate meat here. Okay, it's, Katiana? It's so great that you can just double the order. There we go. See, two meat lovers. Absolute validation. D, how simple is that? That's great. Um, do any of these rules apply in your normal uh, non-surveillance uh, life? The rules, one by one, don't sound, don't sound um, all that interesting. One of them is keep your options open always. And we're talking about working on the streets. So... So another rule was you had to know your terrain intimately. You had to know the city, the streets of that city as well as they do. Where are the shortcuts? Where are logical places to make a turn, to, to go into a, a situation that you can find valuable? Uh, things like um, one of the best was float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, the old Muhammad Ali mantra. The chief of station out there, his name was Jack Downing when we were working, and I saw him recently, and he said, I loved seeing that in the rules. That was, he said, our mantra, too. Um, and what does that mean, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee? That means look innocuous and do not look like a, a spy, and, and then when you go in for the kill, you meet your agent, he gives you 37 rolls of film, and it's, it's the 10 years out plans for their new radar system. That's right. Sting like and that stings. That stings like hell. Stings like hell. There you go. That's the voice of Jonah Mendez, our special guest. We're going to be talking about what she mostly did at the CIA, or at least predominantly did, which is disguises when we come back for segment two. We're at Eel Canale in Georgetown. Stay with us back in just a second. CBS News. This is the Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're at Il Canale, and I can tell you already the bread here is spectacular. Can't wait for the meat lover's feature to arrive. Donna Mendez is our special guest, and during the break we were talking, and she's going to pick right up on the conversation we was, she was having with me, so you can enjoy it exactly as I just did. I'm going to enjoy it a second time. So Donna has uh, a lipstick on the table to apply lipstick, but that's not all. That's not all. Tell mm -hmm. us more. Although I will use it to apply lipstick. Okay, good, yes. Um, I was telling Major Garrett about some of the technology that we used uh, in this, in this uh, surveillance infested situation we were in. We had a small camera, a very, very small camera. Um, it, was, it was a film camera. So that inside of the camera was a film cassette that I used to load in a dark room, unload in the dark room, develop print. But the camera was so small that we could put it in all kinds of little things. 
We could put it in key fobs. We could put it in um, lighters. We could put it in lipsticks. And the beauty was, we, they, they were called active concealments. That meant that every concealment did the job that it should do. The lighter lit the cigarette, and you could have your, your lipstick. Put it on. When your boss walks in, when he leaves, you flip it over, and you can take pictures with using your elbows as a tripod. You can take pictures straight down at a certain distance, always the same distance, of an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper. That was one. But then I reached over and grabbed your Sharpie, and I said, you know, we could also put them in a pen, and we did multiple times, so that your pen would write. You could take a note. Um, but when your boss goes away, you can flip your pen. You can get the same tripod. This is very light on equipment. And you can take, uh, you can take those pictures. And these would be pictures of documents? Of documents. Maps or things like that? Here's the thing. I'm having a conversation with a very knowledgeable former CIA guy. He's one of our bibliophiles. He said, I said, I think these cameras were one of the best tools we had, and one of the most significant tools in the Cold War. He said, well, don't forget the satellite systems. And I, I, I didn't forget the satellite systems. The satellite systems were excellent at capturing the status quo. They'd show you what was there. They'd show you what was there a week later, and you could say, oh, look, they're, they're changing. Something's moved. They've Something's changed. moved. Right. But these showed you the minutes of the meeting. These showed you the plans and intentions of our enemy. These showed you what they were talking about, what they were going to do, and then after the, 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 all the paperwork, it was as close to having someone in the room as you could get. And this is fascinating, folks, because I've done a little bit of reading on this. This is a kind of a pathway through the CIA for you, photography. You started as a secretary, if I remember my reading correctly, and photography became one of your first specialties, and that led you to disguises. Oh, more or less. In a roundabout way. In a roundabout way. Walk us through a little bit of that. Um, let's see. I was hired overseas as a secretary. I was a, a wife. And most of the women at CIA that I knew and worked with, I mean, they were secretaries. One of them had a master's in French. And she was hired as a secretary, so. And your first husband was CIA. My first husband. And was your second. And my second. Right. We, we tend to marry each other. <laughs> We're going to talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> Any, anyway, um, I was going to leave. I was working, I was a top secretary, and there was nowhere to go. Um, so I could see the Smithsonian Castle from my window, from my office, downtown. And I told my boss, I said, you know, this is a very slow job. You don't have a lot of work for me. I think I'm going to go talk to them. He said, don't do that, don't do that. We were the cue for CIA. We were the gadget guys. We were the, the, the Mission Impossible people, the third story people. He said, we give all these classes. Go take some classes. I know you like photography. Take some photo courses. So I did. And I ended up the next week in a twin-engine airplane with no doors and a harness and me and a headphone. And we went all over. And I had a 1,000-millimeter lens. This class was called Airborne Platforms. It was to capture license plates, radar installations, whatever you could, and then come home, develop, look at it, and see, you know, is this going to be for me? Well, that was the first day of the rest of my life. Wow. Um, so I spent years traveling around the world teaching people how to use things, and other things like these, it's all clandestine photography. Um, and I would imagine it's not just the technology, but your facility with it. You've got to be comfortable with it. You can't be sort of 
uh, you, you, also, you need to be, you need you, to be nimble with you it. You also have to be comfortable with the people you're training. A, a lot of people at CIA back then said they won't listen to women. They don't want women doing this work. I mean, you don't have any standing as a woman. I said, can I say, really? bull, can I say bullshit on your show? Yes, you can. That's what I said. I, it, I was fine. I Especially mean, when you mean it. You can, you can definitely say it when you mean it. <laughs> I meant it. Um, being a woman was an advantage when I was training these men who were scared to death, who were afraid for their lives. And if they could use this, this would help save their lives. They would not be caught with the camera photographing a document. This was part of their, part of their um, security plan. Ideas arrived with a meat lover's pizza. How oh, great good. is They're that? They're small. Would yes. you? Dainty. Very dainty size. Yes, we love that. Oh, boy. That's all I can say, folks. It's beautiful. Thank you. Spectacular. Thank you. Um, so guys would use lipstick? The guys wouldn't. They'd use okay. the cricket lighter They'd or use the, the cricket key fob right. or the other things. Right. The, 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 the pins that we did this in were quite expensive pins. They were status symbols in themselves. Um, and I was having a wonderful time doing clandestine photography. And then I went, and I can't get real specific, but I, I went I would to the subcontinent mm -hmm. and fell in love with the country I was in. I came back to D.C. and I actually talked to a man named... Tony Mendez, who was doing some career counseling at the time, and I said, you know, I would like an assignment. I'd like to go back there and, and be forward-based there. He said, there aren't, there aren't any uh, photo jobs open. There's a disguise job coming up in two years. I said, plenty of time. Make me a disguise officer. And they did. Wow. It was, it, did it take two years to become a disguise officer? It took two years, and we could have used more. It was, it, it was um, intense training. Lots of traveling around, lots of going to contractors, lots of chemistry labs, lots of, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's not cosmetology. It's way more than that, especially when you get into some of the advanced systems that we were deploying. We're going to have a long conversation about this. So this is going to go flop over into segment three, but I want to start the conversation. I've heard you describe thinking of a disguise as thinking of an onion. Mm. Lots of layers. Mm -hmm. Walk me through that and, and carry out that metaphor for our audience. Well, if we're talking about the onion, the idea is that, um, first of all, it's not just the facial oval. It's all of you. So if I'm in my disguise lab and you walk in, you say, I need a disguise. First thing I do is challenge you. Why? Where are you going? Why do you need a disguise? So then we talk about what you're going to be doing, who you're working with, who you need to fool, and for how long, how realistic. We may end up dyeing your hair. I mean... If you need to wear this 24 hours a day, we go off in a, another tangent. But I would always start with the idea of, of whoever you're meeting with, they're going to go write a memo and hand it to their boss. I met with this American. This is what he was like. This is my description of him. Every single thing is going to be wrong. So we do. We start at the top. We'll change the color and style of your hair. If you have facial hair, we'll remove it. If you don't, we'll add it. Glasses, we can fix that. Eyes, we can change the color. You have perfect, perfect teeth because your parents spent thousands of dollars on orthodenture. Right. We can wreck your teeth in a heartbeat with a clip-on. It's easy to wear. And then we, we keep going down. You know, are you a, are you a diplomat? Well, we'll open up your shirt and put a gold chain on you and spray some kind of heavy cologne. Mm -hmm. Are you married? Well, we'll take your ring off and all of a sudden you look like you're married but you don't want to be married. 
like maybe you're some kind of a player will change the kind of clothes that you wear. Do you smoke? Oh, you don't smoke? Well, you're going to smoke now. You smoke now, right. We give exactly. you the cigarettes and we give you the lighter. We just go all the way down. Do you have a funny walk? Do you fidget with your hands? When you talk, do you have these little ticks that people have? And we start, we adjust all of those. Pretty soon, pretty soon, the layers of the onion, you have disappeared, and this other guy has, has emerged. And it doesn't have to be another guy. We can turn you into a woman. Most men don't like that. We can turn women into men, and they're much more... Believable. Agreeable. And, and agreeable. agreeable. Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're not going to drill down too deeply into the psychology of that, folks. We'll just sort of let that exist as a given. But on the other side of this break, we're going to talk more about the process of disguise. I'm Major Garrett at Il Canale. The pizza's here. John is going to get a chance to eat some of it. We'll be right back. Oh, boy. Lipstick out of the way. Mm-hmm. Is it as good as it looks? Oh, yeah. It's epic. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Gary. Man, am I having a great time. Having lunch at Il Canale, eating some spectacular pizza with Jonah Mendez, uh, who was with the CIA for 25 years, retired 1993, author of the brand new book, The Moscow Rules. I promised the audience we'd continue this conversation about disguise. And one of the things you can do, ladies and gentlemen, is just type in Jonah Mendez's name on YouTube, and, and, and some videos produced by Wired Magazine will come up. And they talk about many aspects of this craft of disguise and how they're portrayed in popular culture. And, John, we're going to start with a clip I know you're familiar with from one of those Wired episodes. And, folks, it's from a movie that you might not expect would rank highly on the ladder of authenticity on this general topic. What's the movie? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's sought number seven, Katiana. Play that now. For another example of quick change, take a look at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I think uh, the change into the schoolgirl outfit was actually very well done. Really? It demonstrates a, a great precept that we always operated under, and that is that basically uh, the bigger the crowd... Uh, the more forgiving they are if you want to change your clothes in public. If you want to change your clothes in public, go ahead and do it because no one's watching. We all have this psychological trauma that everyone's looking at us. Actually, no one's looking at us, no right? No one's looking, usually. Even, even if you have surveillance, which was our main concern, in a crowd, they're not looking at your face and they're not in front of you. They usually can't be in front of you. They're not watching because you Because they would give themselves away. From behind or even from the side, it's, it's very hard to make out. So they're following your profile. They're following a guy in a hat or without a hat, a guy in a black turtleneck or no black, whatever you present to them, that's what they're gonna follow. So in a crowd, if you can completely change that profile, they lose you. And the beauty of it is, they think it's their fault. Right, in this case, you can, take things that are available in front of you and move along, or you can have them with you and make yourself change in appearance as you're walking. In the film clip, they were stealing some of them. Right, right. We wouldn't recommend that. But we would set this up well in advance. Tony, Tony Mendez had a classic moment in the book where at 45 seconds, 45 steps, he changed from a man in a business suit with an attache case walking directly toward our office director. Nothing in between them. So he could see the change. He changed into an old woman. 
in a pink coat with a shawl, gray hair coming down, face mask. The attache changed into a grocery cart full of groceries. He was wearing black stockings and black Mary Janes. And he did that in 45 seconds. And the whole goal, that was a, a proof of concept because there was an operation that was gonna happen in Moscow. And we had to get one of our officers in a place that he had no business being as an American diplomat. And so he started out his afternoon as a diplomat walking through a group. And he emerged as some old Russian man carrying a book. It wasn't really a book, it was a foam rubber thing full of tools. And he dropped into a manhole. No American ever should be seen going into. And it was the beginning of an enormous, successful operation. But you take it back to the old lady in the pink coat and the Mary Janes and the grocery cart. And you go through that process to establish the proof of concept so you can yes. get the okay to move ahead with this particular yes. maneuver. Yes. Fabulous. Unbelievable stuff. It's part this of is Tony's, Tony's genius. Part of Tony's genius. Um, that, that, is, that is in addition to the genius you see playing out in Argo. Uh, Katiana, number eight now. Uh, this is also from The Wired thing you can find on YouTube. Uh, this is about uh, your cover, your cover story. Your name is Penny Morgan. You're a divorced housewife from Iowa. You've sold more Mary Kay products than anyone else in your state. It's a pretty funny take on uh, being issued a new, a new identity, certainly not the identity that she wanted. Why do I have 10 cats? Is that even legal? She didn't get to choose. I'm the vice president of the Ames Garden Club. I couldn't even be president. The bits and pieces, the, the identity cards, the things they were issuing to her is what we would call pocket litter. So is there any appeals process in the cover story? Can, can I be president of the Garden Club? That was, you know, after I did that, I actually went and watched some of those movies that I had not seen before. That was so funny. Um, not really. Not really, no. The cover's the, the cover. But the people that are constructing the cover, are they have a file on you. They know what you can speak to, what you studied in school, what, you, what jobs you've had, what you might be. You can't claim to be a pipe fitter for a Jordanian uh, engineering company if you if you never worked with anything technical before. So there's a lot of common sense right. in, in the choosing of the cover. I promise to, I'm going to give you three. Um, Katiana, number nine, please. Talking about alias names, Austin Powers. Allow myself to introduce myself. My name is Richie Cunningham. And this is my wife, Oprah. Austin Powers makes you laugh. Yeah, baby! <laughs> Alias uh, names at, at CIA are closely controlled. They are managed. They are assigned to you. My name is number two. You end up with a name for your entire working career. Come again. Your true name is never on paper overseas. Groovy, baby. Oprah would probably not be one of those names. <laughs> But we always had a middle initial. Danger's my middle name. You always had three names. That is so hilarious uh, on its face, the movie, and then your, <laughs> your dry sort of doctoral dissertation on the actual methodology of it. And uh, this is an important part of your life within the agency. It is. Uh, you know, when you traveled, there would always be a, a, a cable preceding you saying, so-and-so is arriving on such-and-such -such flight, such-and-such time to visit you, but it was never your true name. We never used true names in paperwork overseas. So in theory, if somebody broke into our embassy and rifled our, our files, they would never find the true names of the CIA people there. 
that did not quite work out in Tehran. Right. <laughs> the revolution in Tehran, there were incriminating documents that shouldn't have been um, in desk drawers, and, and they did figure out. And they did figure out. Yeah. Even though there was a massive effort, this is portrayed in the movie, to shred those documents, they spent painstaking hours putting those shredded documents, if they could, back together they, into some comprehensible form. They did, and people think that that was maybe a figment of the scriptwriter's imagination, but that turned into an 11-volume set of books that you could buy at the bazaar, and for all I know, you can buy them today. They were like a bestseller. Uh, I've heard you say this, but my audience hasn't. What was your name? Uh, my first name was Faith. Uh, the, the rest of it doesn't really matter, but it was, uh, I always liked my name. Keep the Faith, baby. Right. You know, Faith was a very useful second name. So, um, was there ever an instance for you or within the agency where people forgot their name? Like, you're assigned your name and someone, over, someone says Faith and you don't think of it because you're not Faith and you don't respond. Did that ever happen, or does that could that ever happen? Your work, your, your work. Or is it name, so deeply ingrained? My name, Faith, was never said. Was always on paper. Always on paper. Okay. But I can remember uh, flying into Cuba back when people weren't going to Cuba, and standing at a hotel registration desk, and I given them my passport, and they gave me the form, and I couldn't remember which passport I gave them. Ah. And it was three o'clock in the morning, and I was. And trying to come up with a reason that I needed my passport back, and I did. I said, "There's a there's a piece of paper. My, can I have it back? There's a small piece of paper. I need um, I need that back." So they gave me back my passport. And once I saw the name, it was like, "Oh, of course, I remember this." Right. Wow. I know, I know who I am. Right. So you had to be careful. But you also would choose a name, like in that particular incident. My name was Jennifer. And I chose, I chose that name, Jennifer, because my sister's name was Jennifer. And if anyone around me said Jennifer, I would turn automatically. To, to be able to deal with that scenario I described in a kind of a ham-handed way, that's a real thing. You've got to be able to respond and remember. There's a flip side of that. After the Argo story, after, all, after the true story was over and everybody was, the State Department people were at State and Tony was at CIA, he was on a platform, a metro platform in D.C. Across from him was one of the people, the six people that he had rescued. And when he did that, his name was Kevin Costa Harkins. So that guy only knew him as Kevin. And the guy across the, it was Bob Andrews, and he was going, Kevin, Kevin. And Tony's oblivious because <laughs> six months later, he hasn't been Kevin for, you know, 180 days. Right. He doesn't answer to Kevin. Doesn't answer to Kevin. That's Jonah Mendez. Back for segment forward, Il Canale, uh, and having just a marvelous time. Back in a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Our special guest is Jonah Mendez. Continuing our conversation about disguise, covers, and everything, because that was her work uh, for a good portion of her career at the CIA. Uh, I want to play another soundbite of you um, that talks about not disguise so much, but behaviors and things that we Americans do that present in very distinct ways in other cultures that are, from your perspective and the agency's perspective, dangerous giveaways if they're not managed. Uh, Katiana, that's number 11, please. In terms of behaviors, there are a lot of small actions that give us away. 
the way we eat. Europeans use the fork in their left hand and it doesn't travel back and forth to the right hand, whereas we're constantly putting down our knife and moving utensils back and forth. The way we smoke, we put it between our first two fingers, they tend to hold a cigarette between the thumb and the first finger. When an American stands, they tend to support themselves on one foot or the other. In Europe, they stand straight up. They don't lean on anything. Their weight's equally on their feet. How do you get rid of those? How do you reprogram behaviors that have existed with a person for either much of their life or most of their adult life? Well, it's difficult because it's all unconscious behavior. Right. You, you, you have no awareness. Being aware is the first step. There are some things that you can do that, that will um, propel you toward better behavior. Uh, knowing things like, oh, in movie theaters, when, when Europeans go into a movie theater, into a row, they face the person that they're passing. Excuse me, excuse me. Americans turn it around and you're looking at their backside going by and they think it's rude. Right. We are, so you can, we are too loud. We make too much noise. Americans. Always. Yeah, yeah. They, they complain about that. Um, you can you can remember to tone it down a little bit. Um, you know, we show up with our baseball start, start hats. Start with yourself, Major. Baseball tone it hats, down. our white sneakers, our our, right. our, our sloppy uh, uh, sweatpants, sweatshirts. They think we look a little slovenly, mm -hmm. and sometimes we do. Or worse, we show up, especially men, in shorts with white socks. Oh, it just goes on and on. So you... <laughs> Correct, correct sound effect. So, so all the way through, Katiana. So well done. You want to be careful. I, I was in Paris not terribly long ago with my husband and my son and his girlfriend, and they were going to go over to the left bank on one of the bridges. And I said, as a, was like, I was, I said, be careful at the bridges. This is like, why do you care if they know you're American? I said, be careful at the bridges because there are groups of people looking for tourists and they want to rob you. And they have so many ways to do it. Right, pickpocket, the other ways. So I said, here are, here are the ones I remember. And I told him my stories, holding a baby out, little girl with the ring, is this your ring? All these very clever things. He said, don't worry, I have, I have my wallet zippered into my coat right here. He pulled it, looked, so they left. They came back about 30 minutes later. They got robbed at the bridge. I said, what'd they do? He said a bunch, of, a bunch of people surrounded us. They had clipboards. The two of them were in the middle, these people, and they're saying, get away, get away. They said, we, we're doing a survey. Get away, get away, get away. And finally, when the dust cleared, it was gone. They lifted it. Yeah. That's a good reason. Wow. If you're not a spy, that you don't want to be seen as an American. Because it's it there is I don't want to over dramatize this but there is a higher statistical probability that you will be set upon. Mm -hmm. Yes. Straight out. Because you don't know your way. You don't know your way around. You don't know the. You don't. Know, you're an. Innocent. You don't know where you are. You're you're, you're an distracted abroad. by your surroundings, in a way that makes you slightly more vulnerable, yep. and you are perceived, accurately, to be rich, or comparatively rich. Yep. So you're a target. That may, all those three things make you a target. That's right. A juicy one. Even if you think you're well prepared, as your son clearly did. Yeah, it can happen. Wow. It can happen to anyone. Um, so your first husband was in the CIA. Your second husband was. I want to ask you a general question, not a deeply personal one. But uh, there's a theory in journalism that journalists should marry journalists because only journalists understand this insane world we live in. Is that kind of what there is a thought in the agency world? 
I think there's a certain amount of that, um, especially overseas. Back here, two working couples can have two different spheres that they operate in, and then you know you come together at home with kids, whatever, fix dinner, all of that is good. Overseas, it's quite different. Overseas, um, you you are wrapped in this cocoon of American whatever you're doing. If you're embassy or if you're um, if you're CIA. You don't mix it up quite so much with the locals. Mm -hmm. um, you can't sit around and have comfortable, casual conversations. You become a, a unit, and we tend to stick together overseas. And right. I think a lot of people get married overseas. Right. Just because it's it's comfortable. It's comfortable, and um, you don't have to be on alert every minute. Right. You, know? you can sort of let your little bit of your armor down psychologically yep. and otherwise. Yep. Yeah. And, and the, the, the conversations are a little bit shorter, and if they need to be terse for operational reasons, there's an understanding as to why they need to be terse. Absolutely. Where for someone from the outside, there are all sorts of these things that can't be explained and you can't find the language to explain it. I mean, the movie Breach is about Eric O'Neill's uh, life, in this case with Robert Hansen, and one of the dramatic subplots is he can't tell his wife anything. He's lying to her repeatedly. And that creates this enormous tension within their relationship, with him personally. Those are some of the things. Uh, I, I would imagine there's a lot of personal stress that comes with this particular line of work. There is. It's, it's stressful enough. Even if you have a partner, like Eric O'Neill says, even if you have a partner, you can't tell your partner everything that you're doing. They don't need to know it. You can't tell them. And so th that's... The lowest stress you can have is with the people that you work with who kind of know what's going on. Now, you're out there. You write books. You do these videos. You clearly have an attitude about transparency when it came to your career and comes to what the agency does. That's unusual, it strikes me. Why do you believe that and do you believe there needs to be more of that? It's an interesting point that nobody has really brought up before in a public way. You know, Tony was chosen as a trailblazer, one of the top 50 guys in the first 50 years. It was a huge, huge honor. And George Tennant was um, happy. He, CIA director at the time. He wanted the story of Argo told. He said, we're in, a, we're in a space here where we could celebrate one good story. Let's tell the world. Yeah, he told Tony to talk to Tim Weiner at the New York Times, give him an interview, tell him the story. Tony said... We can't do that. It's still classified. Tenant said, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not now. Uh, Says there, me. There were no intelligence and equities, equities left, and so they decided, yeah, they, they would do that. Well, then that sort of gave Tony carte blanche to do, there were all kinds of interviews, all kinds of, you know, the movie, everything. And Tony wrote his first book called The Master of Disguise, which went through strenuous review but all of a sudden, Tony was able to speak in a way that most CIA people never had been. It was unplanned. It was unanticipated. Um, but he saw it as a chance to tell the human side of CIA. It's not a bunch of, you know, people working up to no good, concocting stories in bars. and. Right. It's, it's a story about, really, uh, people who are professional, who are doing the best job they can to protect this country. And it just kind of grew from there. So this last book, this is the last of four books. 
that, that he wrote and we wrote. And do you think the agency would be better off if, for example, taxpayers knew more about its budget, about its opera, knew more than they currently do? Or is that is that is there a line that just simply has to be held no matter what? I can't I can't answer that. I don't know the answer to that. Um, the more specific it gets, the more people mm, things like budgets. I don't know if that belongs in the in the public venue. To to my mind, it doesn't. It belongs to a Congress and a and a House who very carefully put those things together and thoughtfully make sure the money lands where it's supposed to land. I don't know that a public conversation about your clandestine agencies and their operating budgets and the number of their personnel and how they are deployed and where they are deployed. I'm not sure that goes to any place that's useful to most American citizens. Very good. That's but it great. would be useful to a lot of people who would who like will to, us, uh, Who wish us ill. Yes. Right. That's the voice of Jonah Mendez, our very special guest. Il Canale has been our spectacular host. What fabulous pizza right here in the middle of Georgetown. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. More on this conversation with Jonah. More on Argo and all sorts of other cool things. But for those who are departing us now, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farin, Katiana Krachenko, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Alex Zuckerman, Eric Susanen, and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.